Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. All right, so I hinted a couple times in recent episodes that I was going to be doing a podcast on a thinker named Bernardo Castrup, with a K, Castrup. Today is that day, you guys. So um, you're welcome. Bernardo Castrup. Okay, so if you don't remember me mentioning that Last week, or maybe the week before, or maybe both, um, I had an interaction with, well, lots of nice interactions on uh, Twitter with Knuge and Mapson. So that's at Pandaism on Twitter. Um, that gentleman uh, put together, we talked about um, three, well, three books that were published that are composite books. They're articles published, contributed by multiple multiple parties and put together and published on the idea of pandeism and people's take on it. If you don't remember what pandeism means, um, pan means all and, you know, deism, day is a reference to God. So everything is God. Um, Pandeists have a interesting perspective and there's some uh, evidence that our many of our founding fathers in the United States uh, would identify as pandeist. Uh, But the idea is that everything that is important to know or can be known about God, about, you know, the supernatural underpinnings of the natural world, if such a thing exists, that all that stuff you can learn by experience and by uh, thinking, you know, using human reason and rationality, uh, reflecting on your experiences and the experiences of others. You can really, you can really find there everything you need to know about, about God. And so it's an interesting perspective. It's kind of like, well, it's definitely one that rejects all of the fluff and the pomp of institutionalized religion. Um, doesn't seem like there's much use for ritual in a pandeistic outlook. There's certainly no use for revelation. You know, that's definitely one of the things that that pandeists believe um, is nonsense. And I, you know, I hate to use blanket statements because it's probably not true in every case. But that's something I, t- I disagree with. I think revelation is a real thing. I think experience is revelation. But I also believe that there are other kinds of experience, uh, like mystical experience, that are more to the point of revelation. Um, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much. The reason I talk about this in the context of pandeism is because Bernardo Castro, who we're going to be talking about today, um, he contributed to uh, these articles that were published in these books, Pandeism and Anthology. There's a couple, uh, three of them out already. The one that I'm referring to was published in 2017, 
And the article that I have not read yet, but I am very eager to, is called An Idealist Interpretation of Pandeism by Bernardo Castro. Okay, so at Pandeism was kind enough on Twitter to let me know that this gentleman existed. And then I just sort of carried on living my life. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to look at it right away to, to dive into Bernardo. So I didn't. And um, then uh, somebody posted a, a podcast uh, that Bernardo did. Um, it was called Mind and Matter Podcast. And the host of that podcast is a fellow named Nick Jacomis. And if you're interested, this is episode 60 of the uh, Mind and Matter podcast. So he interviews Bernardo Kastrup, and this is my introduction to Bernardo. And I'll just tell you guys, after, I listened to the podcast twice because it it was that good and because I didn't catch everything the first time. You know, I listened to it twice all the way through. And um, it, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. It was like listening to myself. Um, Bernardo, you know, he's very, very smart guy. He's got a, we'll talk about his background, but he's got a, a very deep intellectual history and very smart, very smart guy. Um, and he's, so he can say things in a way, you know, better than I can. And so hearing somebody like that, who's explaining my ideas, uh, they're his ideas or two, right? But my ideas as well. And he's explaining it to me in a way better than I could formulate myself. And it's just very, very helpful when that happens. Um, so listening to that, to that podcast has got me interested in reading Bernardo's books. Um, I'll probably be listening to more of, more of the conversations he's had, he's had on various podcasts. Um, and maybe I'll bring some more to you, but this is going to be an introduction and it's going to be based really on this episode of, uh, the Mind and Matter podcast. So, um, okay, so let me just begin. I'll tell you what Bernardo says about his own background. And it's real short and sweet, but you can kind of see the picture. It's pretty interesting. So Bernardo says his very first job ever was working at CERN. So if you guys know what CERN is, it's a facility in Switzerland um, where they have a the, the largest particle accelerator on Earth. And they do all these crazy um, experiments on... Um, nuclear physics and um you know that's where they're that's where they're um you know shooting particles uh to make them collide and then they're breaking up into pieces and they're studying what the components are and that's where the higgs boson um news stories came from a few years back cern you know it's a big deal so he worked there in nuclear physics and uh went to school and got a phd in computer science and then got another PhD in philosophy. So Bernardo's got this interesting background where he worked in nuclear physics, you know, so he's got some of that physics in, in his background. Um, he worked in computer science, in particular with artificial intelligence, and he talks a lot about that. So if you're interested in AI, Bernardo would be a good guy to, to listen to. He has an interesting take. Uh, he doesn't think that artificial intelligence will ever become conscious. He doesn't think that that's even a possibility, uh, which is what a lot of people are worried about now. If, if we make a uh, highly intelligent AI, at some point, are they going to be something like a human? At some point, at some point are they going to be sentient? And do they, you know, are they going to need protection under the law? You know, are they going to be like people? Um, are we going to be able to put our minds into a computer and, and have it live forever in silicon? You know, those sorts of things. Bernardo says no. He has absolutely no no reason to think that's possible. So if you're interested in AI, 
you know, maybe check him out. Um, and he got into, uh, he got into philosophy and in, in particular philosophy of mind, because, um, well, you can imagine if you're working on AI, you might be interested to learn as much as you can about how the human mind works, you know, the brain and, uh, consciousness and all that. So that's what he got into. Um, that's his background. That's the picture. That's the package that's going to bring us to some of these ideas, um, that parallel mine in ways that I just couldn't believe. And I saw a lot of that before. It's not like I never, I've not seen this before. When I first got introduced to Alfred North Whitehead, it had the same kind of impact on me. Like, fuck, this guy is saying the things that I think. And he said it long, long ago, and uh, he did a lot better job than me. And um, it's always interesting when that happens. Um, and it's happened with lots of people, but it's happening with Bernardo now, and it's like it happened with Jordan Peterson for me years and years ago. So I have a feeling that this might be the beginning of a of an intellectual romance between uh, Bernardo and me. Um, I guess we'll see. But most importantly, Bernardo calls himself an idealist. We saw that in the title of the, the article in uh, Pandeism and Anthology that I quoted a minute ago. And I think we should probably talk about that a little bit before we jump in. Because we've done a lot in the past talking about panpsychism, um, which is a way of understanding the world. Um, it's a way of understanding the world without, like this dualism that we're accustomed to, you know, mind and matter. That that's sort of how folks tend to break up the world. If you're religious, maybe you call it, you know, body and spirit. But either way, mind and matter. This is this dualism. This dichotomy is really familiar to us, and we're we're used to thinking along those lines. Um, and a panpsychist does that a little bit. Um, they just have a way of framing that where they say there really isn't two things. It's not mind and matter. It's just one substance. Uh, from one perspective is mind, and from another is matter. So it's one way of understanding it. It's one way of uh, getting around this ideal of dualism. And it's it's similar with idealism, and this is what Bernardo believes. They get rid of the dualism, but in a way that is a little different from panpsychism, and also in a way that I... I'm interested in. I think that I haven't settled my own opinion about whether I think that a panpsychist framework is more realistic or that it accords more with my own intuitions or is it an idealism framework that I that I'm really leaning towards and I I have not quite decided. So I want to tell you I'm torn on this, but I really do think it's it's worth um it's worth considering really seriously, and, and this is how it this is how it goes. An idea an idealist believes everything is mind. And so a panpsychist w- would say something similar that consciousness is in everything, but they don't go so far as to say consciousness is everything. Not not all of them, and not exactly, but idealists do. They're, you know, and Bernardo is going to call this mind and not consciousness, and maybe there's some. You know, maybe we're just talking about definitions here, but um, he says everything is mind. Now, when I had when I had a mystic experience, something like this came through to me as very very important. As you know, as 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 some kind of a revelation. You know, is is a very very important part of that experience to understand the unity of existence that everything is one. 
And it's not clear. It's not clear in that experience what what we really mean by that. It's just that's important, you know. And trying to flesh that out is something that you do after the fact, you know, when you have your wits about you again and you can think about things uh, rationally. Then you try to make sense of it in a post hoc kind of way. Um, In any case, Bernardo believes everything is mind. And that includes the physical world. Um, you, you can kind of think of idealism as the polar opposite to materialism or physicalism, which is what we're all familiar with. The scientific worldview, which says everything is matter and there is no spirit. If you think there is spirit, then you're, you know, a chump uh, that's stuck in these ancient religious ideas that are never going to help you. That's what a, that's what a materialist thinks. Everything is physical. There is no such thing as mind or spirit. An idealist is going to say, mm, quite the contrary. There's really no such thing as the physical. There's really only mind. There's only mind. Um, and so we're going to get into the weeds of that, and it's going to make more sense to you. But, but that's the perspective that Bernardo brings to the table. And there's an interesting way that he's going to talk about, um, well... Bernardo is not afraid to talk about religious ideas in the same vein as scientific ideas. And I happen to love that. I, that that's very much the way I think. I think that mythological ideas and stories and images can help me understand um, very complicated ideas, you know, things that I've encountered in quantum physics, you know, th things like that. I think it's entirely appropriate to bring in religious ideas and imagery to try to understand things that are difficult or impossible otherwise to understand. And Bernardo's going to talk a lot about psychology, which I also like. He's going to talk about Carl Jung a lot, like I've been, like I've been doing lately. So there's lots of overlap here. And, um, and so what, one of the things he's going to do is give us a psychological understanding of religious stories, not, not that dissimilar from what Jordan Peterson did that had such a strong impact on me when I first encountered him. And the first thing that comes up here is, well, before I jump into the Bernardo bit, I'll, let me just tell you the, the mythological parallel. Something that we talk about a lot on this podcast are stories about the creation of the world, religious stories about the creation of the world, and these symbols that are used to, to try to make sense of this time before time that we have no knowledge of, we have no experience of. And one of the things that comes up is this idea of, it, of the Ouroboros. It's opposites in union. So you have something like what the mystical experience tells you. You have a divine unity kind of in the beginning. There was something that was one. And, and the mythological story tells you that within that one, within that cosmic egg, um, you've got two forces in there that are opposites. Something like subject and object. Something like the conscious and the unconscious. Something like being and non-being. Masculine and feminine. Something like that. And it's all wrapped up together. It's all one thing, and we tell stories about that thing. In Babylon, we called it Tiamat and Apsu, you know? Um, in the Taoist religion of China, they, they, they have that same symbol in the yin and the yang. And we see it everywhere, this idea of the union of opposites. And it's in, in, in Greece, in the ancient Greek religion, it was the unity of heaven and earth, or chaos and, and cosmos. And, and one of those deities is always considered to be feminine and the other masculine. And so when you bring them together, you have this symbol of something like sex, 
It's a sexual image of the, of a female and a male together in, in union. And so you understand intuitively that there's a creation going on, that this is a creative act. To have these, these opposites together as one thing is a creative act. And so within this cosmic egg that you have in these mythological stories, within the Ouroboros, you have the creation of things in, within that egg just multiplying and multiplying. And all these, you know, gods are being born there. And there's no place for them to exist because everything's one. And so what happens is at some point in the myth, you get separation, you know? You get the heavens separated from the earth. You get something like that that goes down. In the Bible, in the creation story in the Bible, you get it in all kinds of ways. You know, you get the, um, the light separated from the darkness. You get the heavens separated from the earth. You get, you know, the, um, uh, you get the, the, the animals that come out of the water, right? The, or the, um, the animals that live in the water. They're, they're, they're spoken of as being separated from the water itself, you know? And, and even, even man and woman are separated from one another when, when God takes the rib from Adam. So you get this constant pattern of separation and the same thing in the babylonian story tiamat and apsu get separated um they get pushed apart you know and uh there's not a great way of understanding this separation you know what causes it you know what is it what does it really mean you know what, what are the what are the symbols telling us you know it's 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 fine and good to think that um you know just symbolically, that there isn't a place to exist, you know, if, if everything is together in, in a union, you know, there isn't, there isn't even more than one thing, you know, there's certainly no space for a thing to exist, there's only one thing anyway, and if there's only one thing, there's not any relation, right, it doesn't have anything else outside of itself to experience, it doesn't have any place to go, it has nothing to do, without that separation, there's, there's, even though there is something, there's kind of nothing, it's like it's not, it's not uh, powerful, it's not fecund, it's not able to do anything. And so, the separation is required. What Bernardo is going to do in the beginning here, is he's going to give us a psychological explanation for what that separation might be. And he gives us a way of thinking about the myth of the separation of the world parents, as they, as they sometimes are called, um, as something that is psychological. Now, remember, if Bernardo believes that everything is mind, then a psychological separation is no different from this mythological separation. Everything's happening in mind. So, so what Bernardo's going to say is like, could be understood as the mechanism behind this religious story, you know? And I think it's really fucking cool. So here we go. Let's dive in. I'm going to call this first section separation of the world parents. And this just has to, this just goes back to that image of the Ouroboros. And Bernardo says this, he says, dissociation is something we're all acquainted with. Mild levels of dissociation happen when you don't remember something. A dream state is partially a dissociative state because you don't identify with a part of your mind that generates the dream. So we can all become dissociated. When we, come, when we become confused under stress, that's an example of dissociation. All right, so this is the opening. He says, look, there's this thing that happens to our psyches. 
It's called dissociation. It happens to us all the time. When you forget something, when you can't remember something, what that means is that there's some break between your ability to access a memory or some part of yourself. You know, you used, you used to remember it. Now you're having trouble. What's happened here? There's been a dissociation, uh, something mental that blocks or, or removes your access to that thing. And that happens all the time. It happens when you forget something. It happens when you become confused. Um, but it also happens in really dramatic ways. And this is what he wants to bring to us next. He starts talking about multiple personality disorder, right? This is called dissociative identity disorder. And it's something that happens like a healthy, natural thing that happens normally with a, with a functioning human body, this type of mental dissociation. It can go way out of whack, can get crazy. And when that happens, you have this extreme form of dissociation. Um, this reminds me of a movie, a, an old horror movie, uh, not that old, but from the early 2000s called Identity. We've talked about that before, Identity. Um, just about a guy with multiple personality disorder. So if you haven't seen that flick, check that out. Um, but you guys know this. Um, a Beautiful Mind also comes to mind, uh, uh, based on a true story, another good movie. But the idea of a multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder is a person who has multiple self-contained personalities in their in their mind. You know, one mind, but many people there, and it's a very strange thing. In the um, in the literature, when they talk about dissociative identity disorder, they call the different personalities alters. And I think that's weird. I think that language is weird because it's religious language, an altar. You know, an altar is like, well, it's, it's like the, the Holy of Holies from the, from, the, from the Old Testament. It's like the place where God resides. And that's how ancient people believed when they would make an altar to God, that it was a place. You know, you would, you would build a statue and it was a place for the God to come and rest. It was a place for the God to be physically present, physically real in the material world. And uh, the fact that the psych psychological literature calls multiple personalities alters, I think, is strange. Like the different places where the spirit can reside, and, and they're like different identities altogether. And uh, whichever identity has control, they, they say that they call that executive control. The, the personality that's running the body, that's in charge at the, at the time. And then he, he starts talking about interesting examples where some people with dissociative identity disorder, some of their alters are blind, even though they are not. And it, and it gets crazier than that. They've done um, EEG and fMRI scans on people like this that have dissociative identity disorder while the blind alter has executive control. So imagine you're somebody that has multiple personalities in, in your brain, in your mind, and the one that's in charge at the moment is blind. They do a scan on this blind person, and they see no activity in the areas of the brain that are visual, in the visual cortex. No activity. Even though this person's eyes function just fine, they can see perfectly fine when another alter is in charge. But when the blind alter is in charge, they have no activity in the brain associated with visual perception? Are you kidding? How does that happen? What in the hell does that mean? And then he talks about people that have blind sight as another example. 
And this, this isn't a dissociative personality thing, but some people claim that they're blind. Maybe they're blind in one eye or they, they don't have peripheral vision or whatever it is. And the doctors can tell nothing wrong with them physically. You know, eyes seem fine. Uh, you know, brain activity seems fine. There's no reason we can th- see why, you, why you're claiming to be blind. And yet those people still claim to be blind. And if you throw a ball at them from their blind side, they will still raise up their hand and block it or catch it, even though they can't see. So you can see how, how you must dissociate. You must have the ability to dissociate somehow to the point where to the point where you can have an altar that's blind even though your eyes work, or to the point where you can convince yourself you're blind even though your eyes work. It's really interesting. And, it, and the point he's making is that mind has this ability to dissociate. And it's not mysterious in the sense that we know about it, it happens to us all the time. And we can see really extreme versions of it, like with people that have multiple personality disorder. So you can see where I'm going here. If a mind, if everything is mind, like Bernardo the idealist believes, and mind has the ability to dissociate, when I'm telling this religious story about the Ouroboros separating, right, separating from within itself and becoming two things out of one thing, right, you start with the world egg, and it separates, now it's two gods, Tiamat and Apsu. Well, how'd that, how'd that happen? Where did Tiamat and Apsu come from? If, if a second ago they were all one thing. Well, it's not, it's not magic, necessarily. It's not, it's not an unexplained, you know, religious story. Maybe it's something like what Bernardo's telling us now. That if we can trace back mentality to the very, very earliest time, when it first dissociates, that's something like what the myth tells us. It's the splitting of the world egg. It's the separation of the world parents. It's when, it's when mentality which is a unity, it's one thing, becomes two, becomes many, becomes an infinity. And so you have this psychological parallel in this idea of dissociation. And it's not a large leap because it's not mysterious. It happens to us all the time. And if it happens to us all the time, why can't it happen to the mind at large, you know? the mind of God, the cosmic mind, whatever it is that makes up the world around us. If everything's mental, maybe it happens there at that that level also. And it's no more mysterious there than it is with us. When we forget where we left our keys, dissociation, it's just something that mind does. And, And in that way, you can start off with one and you can get many. And that's, that's amazing. All right, he goes on, he says... It has the surprising property of having one mind appear to itself as many separate minds. Dissociation seems to create islands of mentation that are cognitively isolated. He says the different alters are co-conscious. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. You can imagine everything is one. Everything is mental. Everything is mind or consciousness or whatever you want to call it. And through this process of dissociation... That one mind can simply estrange itself from itself and become co-conscious, can become two minds, three minds, an infinity of minds. And they're not different, right? They're not, they're not different things. They're still one thing. They're just dissociated from, from itself. Then he says, the mind is a dynamic web of cognitive associations and dissociations. 
Associations are being formed and unformed all the time. It is a constant dance. And what we call the self is a narrative that emerges from this dance. The narrative is a byproduct of this cognitive associative dance that characterizes what mind is. All right, so let's go back to the beginning here. When he says the mind is a dynamic web of cognitive associations and dissociations, there's a couple things that come to my mind. The first thing is that when he says the mind, he's talking about the, the mind, like your mind and my mind, but he's also talking about ultimate reality. Because remember, to an idealist like Bernardo, mind is ultimate reality. Mind is all there is. So when he says the mind is a dynamic web of cognitive associations, he's saying reality itself is a dynamic web of cognitive associations. So it's hard to understand, but it's like, because it's not something, it's not something physical. We're talking about mind. It's hard to even imagine what a web is if it's not physical. Um, but try to imagine. The other thing that comes to my mind here is something that we've talked about in different ways before, where when we were talking about postmodernism, when we were, we were discussing language and meaning, one of the things that came up is that language, um, it, it, words don't have meaning, not by themselves. Meaning comes from an association. So one word has an association or a connection to other words. And it's only through this cloud of associations that a word has any meaning at all. You know, it's like, um, uh, we've, we've done this before with different examples, but it's like, you know, I, I, I might be trying to talk to you about the sun. And I can talk to you about light. And I can talk to you about heat. I can talk to you about radiation. I can talk to you about uh, a sphere or a circle, you know, flares. There's all these different words that might come to your mind when you think about the sun. And any one of those words by itself, if you ask what it means, all that you can do is refer to other words, right, in that cloud of associations. Um, well, you know, what, is, what do you mean by hot? Well, it's like, you know, this and that and the other. And every single word you come up with is just another word that refers back to other words. Not, not any word by itself has any meaning by itself. Only in a cloud of associations does it make any sense. And so we have this other thing that comes up that sounds a lot like this, that ultimate reality is a, is a web of cognitive associations. Just like meaning is a web of associations. Just like in quantum physics, when they talk about, when they talk about the nature of fundamental reality, you know, these fundamental particles that make up atoms, they don't exist as a, as a, as a particle or as a, or as a wave. They exist as both at the same time. What they are is a cloudy, um, it's, it's like, uh, you know, when, when they talk about where an electron is, like, you know, it's not here or there. It's kind of everywhere. It's got a probability of being here or there or, you know, of everywhere. And that's how reality is. It's, it's a, some sort of a relationship, like a cloud of relationships. And, and so you're seeing Bernardo speaking that same language about ultimate reality. It's a cognitive web of associations. And then he says this stuff here um, about the self. And I think by this, he's kind of talking about the ego as like the, um, the part of ourselves that thinks of ourselves as a unique 
um, separate individual entity all by ourselves. Uh, the thing that we associate with our face and our name and our memories and our feelings, you know, the ego. He says what we call the self is a narrative that emerges from this dance of associations. The narrative is a byproduct of the of this associative a cognitive associative dance. And he says that it characterizes what mind is. So it's, it kind of sounds to me like the sense of self, the ego. It's something that emerges, well, from dissociation, right? We dissociate from the, the larger cloud of, of uh, mind. You know, we dissociate from that thing where we came from. And when we do, we, we think of ourselves as separate. We think of ourselves as standing alone. So I have, I'm a self now. I've become a separate self. And as soon as I do that, as soon as I become a separate self, then I exist in association with the rest of me, with everything all around me. As soon as I become a self, there's an association of myself to, the, to everything that's external to me. You know? My house, my family, my friends, you know, motion, um, you know, everything has got an association, a temporal, a spatial temporal association or, or, or whatever. Well, as soon as you become a self, you become a cloud of associations relative to everything else. And Bernardo tells us that that's, that's an illusion because what you are, mind, and what everything is outside of you, mind, is all just one thing. You only think it's different because you've dissociated from it. And that's just a property of mind. That's just what happens. And when that happens, you think of yourself as an individual. You have an ego. And you think of the world as, as associated with you in all these different ways. And none of that is real. And that brings me to the next section, which is called Perception and Illusion. So, I think it's funny that anytime you... Anytime you dive deep into physics or into psychedelic experience or into, um, you know, higher dimensionality or anything like that, anytime you step into anybody who has these, these ideas uh, that question the way the world is, it, really, it always seems to filter back to a disconnect between how things are in reality and how they seem. And that people only only have access to how things seem, and not and not access to how they actually are. Um, and we see this in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, you we, we, you know you might you might think you know why um, somebody's doing the things they're doing, or you know why they're why they're expressing emotion. You you might make assumptions about that, um, but you get the, you know the possibility that you're wrong is is always there. And the same thing with our um, with our perceptions. It's like you realize that all of our sense organs are different. You know, they're all shaped differently. You know, some people are near sighted, some are far sighted. Some people see color, some don't. Some maybe some people hear a different range than other people. And so you realize that nobody's senses are picking up exactly the same thing. Everybody's getting different inputs, and, and we're all supposed to be experiencing the same world. And there's a disconnect between perception and reality. And people who think about that will, will often look for extraordinary explanations, you know, like the craziest thing in quantum physics, the craziest things in uh, philosophy. They come from this problem. And Bernardo's no exception. So let's dig into this. He says, 
what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness is just raw experience. It is the qualitative aspect. It is what it's like to be us. Then he says, consciousness does not depend on higher level mental functions. It is a raw property of mind to have experience. Okay, so mind has experience and everything is mind, right? So everything has experience. And and he says what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness is exactly that. It's raw experience. When he says consciousness does not depend on higher mental functions, what he's saying there is that consciousness doesn't require a sophisticated brain or nervous system. We oftentimes think that's the case, like that something has to be like us to think like us or have experience like us. He's saying that's not the case, that, that mind experiences, and it doesn't have to be sophisticated at all. Mind experiences, period. And then he says, and then he brings in this word called meta-consciousness. He says, meta-consciousness is when mind folds in upon itself to examine its own dynamics. And he's just making this distinction, and it'll become clear in a minute why, that there's something like consciousness, which is raw experience. Then there's something he calls meta-consciousness, which is like examining your own experience. And memory is going to fall into that category because when you remember something, it's, that's what it's like. It's like you're, you're re-experiencing an experience. So this is what metaconsciousness is. It's not, the real, it's not the raw experience of the world. It's your reflection on that experience. It's kind of like he says it's, if your perception is a representation, metaconsciousness is a re-representation. It's like you know a copy of a copy. And he says failure to recognize the distinction between consciousness and meta-consciousness has led to a lot of confusion about what consciousness is. It's because people conflate the two. So it's not the same thing to have experience. It's not exactly the same thing as to reflect on that experience. You know, to have an experience is something immediate. It's something that you can never duplicate. Even your memory is not an exact copy of an experience, right? So an experience is something well, something magical. It's something, you know, that you cannot recreate. But metaconsciousness is that attempt. You know, it's the reflection. It's the, um, the re-representation of an experience. But they're not the same thing. He says what Freud and Jung call the unconscious was just dissociated contents of experience, not accessible from the point of view of the ego. All right, I'm, I'm going to push through, but I'm going to circle back to that. He says, the ego could not introspect into those experiences, but they were still phenomenal. In other words, they were still consciousness stuff, but they gave it the name unconscious. And then he says, they should have called it the unmetaconscious, because that's what they're really getting at here. And I thought this was really, really mind-blowing. I, I, I've been really struggling um, reading Jung and his his pupils trying to understand this stuff really well and what he means by the unconscious. I've always, and you've heard me say this before, I've always used the analogy that, well, there is a unity, there is a mystic unity, everything is one, and I think that is consciousness, whatever that unity is. Very, very much like Bernardo would say that, that it's mentality, it's, it's the mental, that's what everything is. So I'm, I'm following him up to that, that point. I always thought that in trying to understand this, that 
that reality is like well, like the Ouroboros. It's t- it's two opposites in union. Something like the conscious part and the unconscious part. And the conscious part, in my mind, always correspond corresponded to being to the to material reality because those are the things that consciousness experiences. You know, the world around us. And then there's this unconscious part that we don't experience, and yet it's still part of us. We just don't have access to it. I, I used to call it the unknown part of the self. But in, in Bernardo's terms, you know, I might just as easily call it, call it the dissociated part of, of the self. You know, the self is everything. It's the mind. That's what everything is, according to idealism. What I am, the conscious part, is just the dissociated part of that. That, that looks back on, that can, you know, that can be metaconscious. But anything that, anything that we can't be metaconscious of, anything that we can't reflect back on, we're dissociated from. It doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't mean it's not conscious. It just, just means I don't have access to it. The unconscious is the rest of me, the rest of the consciousness that I am. I just don't have access to it. I think that's an interesting way of, of thinking about it. So the unconscious is merely the mental that's just not available for introspection. It's consciousness separated or dissociated from itself. I love that. I love that. In other words, the unconscious is conscious. It's the other it's the the rest of it. The unconscious is the rest of consciousness, you know? The rest of reality. And then he says Perception is mediated by the sense organs. Okay, well, of course. He says something has to be impinging on those measurement surfaces that then get translated into what we call perceptions. So all he's saying here is that in order for us to have a perception, we have to have something impinging on our measurement surfaces, our eyes, our fingertips, our, you know, our, our nose, whatever it is that we use to detect the world out, out, you know, outside. That something has to be playing on those measurement surfaces. And we call those things perceptions. But then he brings up dreams. He's like, you know, but dreams aren't mediated by the sense organs. They're entirely endogenous, self-generated imagery. Then he says, often, we cannot distinguish between a dream and real life when we are in a dream. What that shows us is that the mind is perfectly capable of endogenously generating the entire imagery that we associate with reality. Oh my God. Amazing. So he makes a great point here. He's saying, look, when you look out at the world, you have perceptions. You see all these things, right? You see images. You see the sun, the horizon, trees, objects. You see things out there. And we assume that we're getting some signals from what's really out there. And that's what we're seeing when we look out at the world. And he's saying, but when we dream, we don't have any of that input from the world. And yet we still come up with images. We still generate these same types of images that we would talk about from our waking life. We have space, we have time, we have objects. All of those things exist in our dreams, just like they do in our waking state. And what that tells us is, the mind is perfectly capable of generating all of the imagery associated with reality. We do not need anything from outside of us to do that. You can tell by dreams, right? All of the imagery that we associate with reality 
we make in our minds. And you can see that from a dream. So the question becomes, what's really going on in our waking life? Is it different from a dream? And he goes on, he says, some people like Anil Seth describe perception as a controlled hallucination. A hallucination of the same kind as dreams, but which is modulated by what impinges on our sense organs. So the mechanisms are the same. The same brain areas, the same patterns of activity are involved. When you experience something for real, when you dream of it, or when you remember it. The mind is engendering the imagery we call reality and the imagery we call dreams and memories. So if the mind is perfectly capable of creating the, the images that we call reality, the same as they generate the images that we call dreams or memories or fantasies or psychedelic experience, well, that says something about our mind. It says something about reality, doesn't it? It's not exactly necessary for there to be a world outside of us, for us to have the images that we associate with a world outside of us. Oh, man. All right. All right, then he says, if you look at the work of Carl Friston about inferential perception, what we see is what our mind infers about the world. It's not what the world actually is. If you look at the work done by Donald Hoffman, game theory proves that evolution would not favor us seeing the world as it is. It would favor us seeing the world in whatever way would favor survival. So what he's saying here is, well, if our mind can generate the images that we call reality, and we know that those images don't correspond exactly to what uh, what the, what's really there, right? Just they're just perceptions, and we're gonna get we're gonna get next here to a deep explanation of what he means by that. Um, but he's what he's saying is that those perceptions that we call reality, that there's no reason to believe that they reflect the way the world really is um, at all, because the work of Carl Friston, Friston and Donald Hoffman have shown that. How the way our mind actually works and the way evolution seems to work is that nature would provide us with, with whatever the most efficient perceptions um, are, whatever, was, whatever is most efficient to generate the behavior that would allow us to survive, right? Evolution wants us to procreate and to survive. So you can think about this, I mean, an easy way to think about this is the world's really complicated. You know, if you had to create um, like a simulation of the world and you had to do it in, in as much detail as, as the actual world, it would be it would be impossible, you know, or very nearly, very, very nearly impossible that the world is very, very, very complicated. Now, if, if evolution could create exactly a one-for-one duplicate in your mind, a map in your mind of how the world really is and how complicated it really is, that you wouldn't be able to function. There's too much going on. There's too many variables. There's too many calculations. You wouldn't know up from down. You couldn't function. You would die. So instead, what evolution does is a much easier thing, a shortcut, an efficiency, 
what, what evolution really does is give us a model that's simple, that's simplified way, way, way down in a way that allows us to behave properly, to survive and to flourish and to not get bogged down in all the unnecessary details, on all the complexity and sophistication of what's really there. No, just give me a simple model, you know? Give me a chessboard, and I'll teach you how to wage actual war. You know, that's the idea. We have a chessboard uh, instead, of, uh, instead of the, you know, the, the real lay of the land. And, and that, so, so just bear in mind that perceptions, perceptions can't be really understood as one-for-one um, yeah, references to what's really out there in the world. And that means that what's really out there in the world is to some degree unknown or unknowable to us. And what about it we don't know? I mean, well, that's a mystery. But don't you want to know? Aren't you curious, you know? And that brings me to this, which is really, really interesting. He says, you have to understand that the screen of perception is not a transparent window to the world as it actually is. The screen of perception is like the dashboard of dials on an airplane cockpit. So by screen of perception, he means something like veil of perception, which, which is just like what we were talking about. How you see the world out there is not how the world really is. And the way he puts that is, perception is like the the dashboard of dials on an airplane cockpit. It's not, it's not what's really out there, but it is information about what's really out there, you know? He says, we have never seen the world as it actually is. All we have is the cockpit. Now, the cockpit's very important. It was given to us by evolution to provide accurate, salient information about the world. A pilot can fly a plane safely by instruments alone in the dark night during a thunderstorm. You don't need a transparent windshield, and in fact, you don't want to look through it because it would be misleading. It would disorient you. We are in the position of the pilot. All we have is the dashboard, and we think that the dashboard is the world, or at least that the dashboard looks like the world. And he says, Nothing about us has ever evolved to enable us to have an accurate worldview. Everything about us has evolved to help, help us to survive. So isn't that interesting? So our perceptions are a model of reality, and they're simplified way, way down, because if we saw reality as it, as it actually was, it would be disorienting. We wouldn't be able to navigate it. We wouldn't survive. So instead, we have this dumbed-down, simplistic version, which is like the dials of a dashboard on, a cock on an airplane cockpit. They're giving us information, like our eyes and nose and ears, giving us information about what's actually there. But what we perceive is not the thing that's actually there. Not at all. All we see is the cockpit, the information in the cockpit. Then he says, It's useful for mind to deceive itself to buy into a certain narrative that is conducive to survival because it motivates you, because it helps you avoid danger. So what he's saying here is, if a simplified version of the, of the world of, of reality, if that tool helps you to act in the world or helps you to avoid danger or you know dying, then that's all we need. 
All we need is the simplified version. You know, it's better, in fact, better for us. And then he says, then he says, physics is the science of perception. Physics is the science of perception. He says, even if you use instruments, you only see the results by perceiving it. So ultimately, everything gets filtered by the screen of perception. In other words, everything you can possibly know about the world are given to you on your inner dashboard. They are not the world. They are always filtered and mediated through your internal dashboard. You always only see the dashboard. Amazing. Amazing. Um, for a couple reasons. I mean, it reminds me of, um, reminds me of Buddhism. And, and, you know, there's no, no issue at all bringing religion into this conversation. I don't think Bernardo will have any issue with that. So in, in Buddhism, they say that the world is, is called maya. That perception and experience in the world is an illusion. And they call it maya. And that's exactly what Bernardo says when he says, you always only see the dashboard. You don't see what's really there. You never see what's really there. That's the thing Kyle and I always mention when we talk about objective reality. What is really there? Philosophy likes to say the thing in itself. And that's the, you know, the Terminator 2. Liquid metal could be anything. T-1000 substance. It's the ones and zeros behind the matrix. It's whatever it is that's really there that we don't see. There's also this interesting thing he begins with when he says physics is the science of perception. You know, we think of physics as the science of the material world, of, of what objects are really made of, right? So we're perceiving objects, and we, what we want to study those objects, that's called physics. And Bernardo's saying, no, what you're studying with physics is perception. And this, this reminds me of, I can't remember where this came up originally, but uh, when we were talking about physics in the past, uh, one of the one of the references was about how the world is a unity that reality is a unity everything is connected and interrelated but the the reality is one thing and if you if you say that an an atom exists what you're doing is you're pulling a piece of reality that is one thing you're pulling a little piece of it out you're abstracting it and saying no 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 this thing exists all by itself this atom but that's that's actually not true an atom doesn't exist. And we're, we're going to get into that in just a minute. An atom doesn't actually exist. What exists are quantum fields, right? An atom is an abstraction. It doesn't actually exist. So what are we studying when we pull an atom, when we abstract an atom out of the wholeness, out of the real reality, and we try to hold it in our hand and say, well, this thing we have in our hand is X or Y? No, it's not. It's an abstraction. It's something that doesn't exist because what exists is the whole what exists is reality, not the atom. And so to say physics is the science of perception is like, it's almost like the atom abstracted from reality is like one of the pixels on my television screen. You know, I'm seeing a picture, seems like reality, but if I reach in and grab a, one little pixel and rip it out of the television, then I'm holding something and I'm pretending like this thing is, it exists all by itself. And it has some meaning all by itself, but it doesn't. It only has meaning and relevance in the whole, back in the TV where it belongs. And so 
what we're studying in physics is is not, and, you know, even in studying an atom is not like studying the fund, fundamental building blocks of reality. It's something more like ripping a pixel out of my TV and trying to imagine, you know, what 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 in the world it is that that allows it to be this TV. You know, you're not studying reality. You're abstracting something and pretending. And I think that that's what he means. That's what he means by that. And that brings us to our next section, which I'm going to call idealism. So we can get into some of some of Bernardo's more interesting ideas. And this opens with a quote from another philosopher, a guy named Arthur Schopenhauer. It goes like this. With the disappearance of willing from consciousness, the individuality is abolished. The pure subject of knowing remains as the eternal world I. This I looks out from all living beings. It is thus identical with itself, constantly one and the same. And that's a beautiful, beautiful quote. So when he says, with the disappearance of willing from consciousness, he's just saying, imagine a conscious creature that doesn't have a, that doesn't have a will, it doesn't want anything for itself or, or, or whatever. If it has no will, then it has no individuality anymore. If you have no will, if you just defer your will to the universe, then the universe has will, then the universe has consciousness, and you don't. And so having a will is really important to the idea of, of having a self, of being a self, of having individuality. You have to have a will of your own to be something all on your own. When you remove that, he says, you're left with the pure subject of knowing. So if you take away the ego, if you take away the will and the individuality, what you're left with is the pure subject of knowing. That's consciousness, you know, mind. And he calls that the eternal world I, an I that looks out from all living beings. Man, oh man, that's good. That is so good. I, I, um, I probably have trouble remembering it on the spot, but I had a quote that I wrote down um, after a mystic experience that I had. And it was something like, oh, it was something like another, another eye for that which sees. It's like every, every creature that's born, everything that has sight is, a, is, is another eye, another, another hole to look out at the world. But the thing doing the looking, the thing doing the seeing is the same behind every eye. It's consciousness. And that's what Schopenhauer said. Amazing. All right, back to Bernardo here. He says, The problem of materialism is that it assumes that, that physical entities have standalone existence. But a series of ever more sophisticated experiments have concluded beyond a reasonable doubt that physical entities do not have a standalone existence. Right? It's exactly what I just said a minute ago about the atom. It does not have a standalone existence. Right, the pixel and the TV—it's no longer—it's no longer the image on the TV when you rip it out, is it? It doesn't have a standalone existence. He said they only exist upon measurement. What we call physicality is the result of measurement. It's like what's displayed on the dial in the dashboard when the sensors of the airplane measure the world outside. If you don't measure, then nothing is displayed on the dials. In other words. There is no physical world if you don't measure. Which does not mean there is no world. There is the thing that is measured. It's just not physical. 
Okay, so this is an absolutely fantastic explanation of wave function collapse, which we've talked about in physics before. It's always been a really hippy-dippy sort of spiritual idea that, that when you look at reality at the most fundamental level, when you're, when you're making observations at the quantum level, you have to observe the observation. You have to observe it happening in order, in order for anything to be something specific, something physically, materially real. And the way that they explain that in physics is to say that there's quantum uncertainty, that uh, something that you're observing at that level, um, it, it doesn't have a um, specific motion or position. And the reason you the reason you can't say that it's it doesn't have a specific position or specific momentum, you can't say those things about the object because it's not a physical object. It's a field of potential. It could be. It could be here. It could be there. It could influence this. It could influence that. It, what it, what the thing is in and of itself is not a physical thing. It's not a particle. It's a it's a it's a wave. It's a it's a fe- quantum field. And as soon as you measure it, as soon as you observe it, the quantum field collapses and becomes a particle. And it's weird, right? It's hippy-dippy. Einstein, I think, I don't know if he said this exactly, but uh, he made fun of the idea in the beginning. He's like, so what happens to the moon? Does it disappear when I don't look at it? And so this is the, this is the, uh, the resistance that physics in the early days brought to these quantum ideas. But Niels Bohr proved them to be 100% correct. It's not to say that when you don't look at the moon, it, it doesn't exist. It's just to say that what, what you refer to as the physical moon requires observation. When you look away, there's still something there. There's still some objective reality there, but it's not a physical reality. That It does require observation. And if you think that's weird, I would just suggest to you that if, if, if you go along with Bernardo and thinking that everything is mind... Um, what that means is that there's always an observer. You know, that's why the physical world is a physical world. Because everything is observing everything everything else all the time. You know, every time an atom bumps into another atom, there's an observation. Every time a, a, a conscious creature opens their eyes, there's an observation. You know, every time one field interacts with another, there's an observation. So, you know, everything is is in this closed loop of consciously being observed. And that takes whatever objective reality is, this quantum field of potential, and it collapses that into the world that we see, the physical world that we see around us. But that doesn't mean that the world outside doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that the physical is all that exists, not by a long shot. All right, he says... Subatomic particles are metaphors. Quantum field theory tells us what, uh, what exists are quantum fields that are not spatially bound. Subatomic particles are particular excitations of this field. There is nothing to the subatomic particle but the underlying fields. So there you go. If, if, a, if a physicist or a scientist tells you that there are particles, subatomic particles, there aren't. What, what there are are fields, and they're nothing like a physical object. They're not physical at all. There's something that radiates through space and time in some, you know, impossible to explain way. We don't know the first thing about it. 
But when they're observed, they become physically real. They become a particle, a subatomic particle. And so that's simply a metaphor of a greater reality. And the greater reality is not a physical one, but a mental one. All right, then he brings up, then he brings up the problem with idealism, you know, not to avoid the, the conflict. People say, you know, you know, I can't go with idealism because X, Y, Z. He wants to tell you what, those, what the biggest objections are. So that's what we're going to look at. All right, he says the problem with idealism. If everything is happening in one mind, how don't I know what's happening in the galaxy of Andromeda right now? So we call that the decomposition problem, right? If everything is one mind, how is it that one mind can seem to be many? And he says, nature is shoving under our nose a solution to the decomposition problem. And that is dissociation, right? That is how one mind becomes many. He said, we know that in nature, minds can seemingly fragment themselves into separate centers of awareness that are co-conscious. They can even interact with one another, but don't identify with one another and don't have associative access to each other's private inner lives, right? They all seem to be self-contained selves all of their own. But in reality, they're not. They're just dissociations of the one mind. And that is how you can have one mind that doesn't know what's going on on Andromeda right now. He says, there is a world out there beyond our individual minds. But an idealist would say that the world too is of the same kind as mind. It is also mental. It's not my mental stuff. It's not your mental stuff. It's transpersonal mental stuff. And the question is, if that mental stuff undergoes dissociation, should there be something that dissociative stuff looks like? My claim to you is that there is, and it's what we call life. What we call life is what the dissociative process in the mind of nature looks like. Matter is what mentation looks like when experienced from across a dissociative boundary. Oh, man. There you have it. There you have it. Matter, the physical, is what the mental looks like when experienced from across a dissociative boundary. So the moment I dissociate from the source and I become my own individual self, when I look at the rest of myself, when I look at the rest of mentality, it looks like something apart from me. It looks like the material cosmos. Amazing, amazing. All right, then he, then he says, Schopenhauer said, without space and time, everything would occupy the same volume of space at the same time. There would be no differentiation, and everything would be one. And this is actually what is going on. Okay, so Schopenhauer believes that's actually what's going on. Everything is one. He says, he followed Kant in saying that space and time are modes or categories of perception. They are not out there. They are just the tricks our mind uses to make sense of the world. So space and time 
They're the tricks. There's some sort of mental trick we're playing on ourselves. It's part of this being dissociated from the rest of ourself, you know? Space and time is necessary. And then he proves this uh, kind of uh, obscurely. He says, loop quantum gravity does away with time as fundamental. So this is a, a, a new um, fangled f- uh, physical approach to gravity. Loop quantum gravity does away with time. He says Julian Barber wrote the book, The End of Time, in which he rewrote all the laws of physics, removing T for time. And he showed that physics remains entirely coherent without bringing time into the fold. What? So all of the laws of physics, all of these formulas that we use, that we use to describe the world in every way you know, that we can, those formulas work perfectly fine without time in them. Amazing. Amazing. He says space and time are not really real. What really exists is the world outside of space-time, not what we see in space-time. But what we see in space-time are projections of that real world. So that's the dashboard analogy again. So I want to point out when he says space and time are not really real, that's something that comes through in the mystic experience. It's not just that everything is one. It's that all moments are one, you know? Space and time is something that when you have a mystic experience of that kind, it's very, very difficult to take that for granted like the way you used to. Space and time seems fishy. And this is what he means. I think that's really, really cool. So the, the real world is, is the potentiality behind our perceptions. What is being observed by our dials, right? Um, that, that's the material world that appears on our dials. And then he says, what idealism says is that there is a real world out there. It is external to my mind, but it is mental. And I grant the inference that it is mentation in the same way that I grant that your mentation exists, even though I cannot access it. I don't know what you're thinking, but I grant that your thoughts exist. In exactly the same way, I grant that there are thought-like processes constituting the external world. Oh, man, oh, man. So he's, he's um, referencing a philosophical problem. It's called the problem of other minds. It's like we all understand that we are a mind. We all understand that we're conscious because we have direct experience of being conscious. But when we look at other people, we can only assume, we can only infer that they're conscious, right? They could be a robot. They could be, you know, faking it. They could be artificial intelligence, right? But they seem to be conscious. So we infer that they're conscious. And he says that's the exact same principle when we're considering the rest of material reality. That's mental too. And we can infer it the same way we infer it through others. All right, that brings me to a segment I'm going to call Jung, because Bernardo talks a lot about Jung, and I, I was surprised actually to hear it, um, but but grateful too because uh, because there's a well there's a special place in my heart for Jung's ideas, and um, 
with all the overlap I have with Bernardo on this so far, I thought this was the cherry on top. So, all right, so let's start with this young bit. He says, The existence of archetypes are an implication of the following hypothesis. To be is to have properties. To be is to be one thing and not another. Therefore, what you do is determined by what you are. All right, so that... I would just say that gave me some pause, so I'll just mention when he says what you do is determined by what you are, you might you might want to push back against that and say what I do is determined by what I am. What do you mean by that? So I would just say that um, you know the type of person you are will absolutely determine what you're likely to do and what you're you know likely to avoid. So what you are does have a lot to do with what you're likely to do, but it's also it's also when I, a question of identity with a lot of things. You know, if we talk about like um, an electron, let's say, what an electron is is an, is an elementary particle that has certain properties like charge and spin and all this sort of stuff that physics describes. And what an electron can do, like what it's capable of doing, has everything to do with those properties. An electron cannot do what a proton does. An electron cannot do what a neutron does because it's not those things, right? It has certain properties, and those properties control what it can do and what it cannot. That's all he's saying when he says what you do is determined by what you are. You know, like, I can't fly because I don't have fucking wings. You know what I mean? All right, he says, if you are... You behave according to certain patterns and regularities. Why? Because you are what you are. If you were something else, you'd have other patterns and regularities. Those patterns of behavior are the archetypes. To be is to behave archetypally. And then he says, the same archetypes that manifest themselves through the human mind manifest themselves through the physical world at large. For Jung, the collective unconscious was the mind of nature that presents itself as the physical world. And because it's mental, it has mental archetypes. And those archetypes can be cataloged in the form we call the laws of physics. They are the regularities of behavior of nature, the archetypes of nature's mind. For Jung, the archetypes of the human psyche are instances of the same archetypes as those described by the laws of nature. They are just metaphors to describe certain regularities of behavior in nature. The world at large and your mind are both expressions of the same underlying mental archetypes. All right, that blew my mind when I read it. So we look at, we look at the physics that governs, you know, the material world. We see how atoms behave. We see how, you know, galaxies behave. We, we look at the big picture and we see how things, how things act in the world. And turns out atoms act like atoms, you know. All different kinds of atoms, they act like atoms. And chemicals, they act like chemicals. And planets, like, they act like planets. And galaxies, they act like galaxies. So having a certain form is to behave in a certain way. And those, those regularities, he's calling archetypes. And so if, the, if nature behaves in a certain way, we can call those the laws of physics. But we can also talk in a psychological way about how human beings act. We're a part of nature. We act in a very patterned way. Human beings act like human beings, you know? 
And, he, and the craziest part about this is that he's saying that the, those regularities, the, what causes those regularities, the things that we call the laws of nature that govern how nature behaves are the same things that govern how human beings behave. And it's so interesting because it makes me think of the way Carl Jung talks about archetypes, when he talks about the shadow or the anima or, or something like that. And a law of nature, you know, like gravitation. And try to imagine how gravitation and the anima are the same type of thing. They're creating patterns of behavior in nature. Amazing. Um, one example comes to my mind is like, physics says that energy is eternally changing forms. You know, it's like energy isn't created or destroyed. It's always changing from one form to another. So energy makes up everything. You know, energy, according to Einstein, is, is equivalent to matter. Everything you see around you is made of energy. Energy is constantly changing forms. So that's a law of physics. That's something that describes how physics acts, how it behaves, how nature behaves, right? It's a regularity of behavior. And that parallels the psychological archetype of transformation, right? The human psyche is always learning, maturing, adapting. The person that you are has always, always constantly changing, right? That's a regularity of human behavior, a regularity of psyche. Just like energy always changing from one form to another. It's a predictable regularity of nature. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And then he ends this section by saying that there was a letter that Carl Jung sent to a, a priest who was a friend of his named Victor White, where he said that the psyche is that which is not reducible, a thing in itself, a noumena. And Bernardo says that is an idealist speaking. So he believes Carl Jung was an idealist like he is, somebody who believes everything is mind. And that's exactly what Jung said when he said the psyche, by that he means mind. It is not reducible. It's a thing in it. it's in itself. It's objective reality. It's the thing behind our cockpit dials that we're, that we're you know, taking measurements of. It's, that's the thing that's really there out the window. Mind. Now that brings us to psychedelic experience. So this is always a, always an interesting topic for me, and it turns out that Bernardo's quite the um, psychonaut, and he, like a lot of people who have a lot of practice um, having mystical experiences, thinking and talking about them, he, he lays out some just golden gems for us here, so I'm going to read this to you. Uh, he's talking about psychedelic experience, and he says, they are certainly not for fun. It's a hard curriculum. And that's a great way of putting it. Psychedelic experience is a hard curriculum. He says, once you've been there, you know that it's an infinite world. And my takeaways are the following. There is a lot more about my own inner mentation, a world of rich imagery, rich cognitive association, rich feelings, rich imagination that is completely beyond metacognitive access stuff I don't have excuse me stuff I don't know I have in me and would never have known if I hadn't done a psychedelic trip 
So he's talking about the imagery, the emotions, the connections, uh, the, the you know the, just the the sheer power of psychedelic experience. That that is all entirely unknown in his waking waking world. He didn't know that 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 the possibility of all of those images and experiences in psychedelics were even possible. He didn't know that they were even within him, and they were the whole time, right? He says he says they were completely beyond metacognitive access, right? That's when he's reflecting back on his own mind, right? They're not available to him there, and yet when he has a mystic experience, that's where he finds himself in this crazy, completely unknown world of imagery that he's that he's developing this coming right out of his own mind but he didn't even know it was there it's in this hidden hidden part of his mind you know what we might call the unconscious if if we were Carl Jung he says the stuff i don't know i have in me and i've called that the unknown part of of the self right just different language for the same for the same reality he says Psychedelics show you what you really, really want, how you really, really are from within, how you really feel. And much of this stuff we'd rather not know. It makes us fear ourselves. And I think that's interesting for a host of reasons. Because the things that you don't know about yourself often are things you choose not to know about yourself. Those are things that we repress. You guys have heard that word before repression you know if we're a bad person let's say at some point in our life we did something horrible to somebody um we feel really guilty about it we have a hard time coming to terms with it or deal with it we're we don't want to apologize for it because we are ashamed what happens we just repress it we bury it way down and we pretend that that didn't happen that we're not bad people that's what he's talking about he said the stuff that you that you find out about yourself the stuff that you learn and experience in psychedelic experience are parts of yourself that you would rather not know, right? They're the unconscious parts. They're parts that were, let's say, part of that dissociation from source, part of that, you know, part the unknown part of yourself, the God part. You're getting little, you're getting little snips of it. You're getting, you're getting little whiffs of it, you know, in, in a psychedelic experience. And he says it makes us fear ourselves. And I think that's true. There's a huge component of fear and trembling, you know, the, the mysterium tremendum, when, you're, when you have a mystic experience. And it reminds me of a quote that says, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that's connected here. So if you do a psychedelic experience and you see things within yourself that you didn't know were there, the power, and it, and it scares you, makes you afraid of yourself, Right? What it's doing is it make, it's making you understand, well, what he said, what you really, really are from within. What you are is God, right? You are mind, existing in this world made of mind. What does that make you? That makes you God, right? That's where the fear comes from. When you realize, you know, even just obliquely, that you might be God, it, it, it is a fear-inducing experience, right? It makes you fear yourself, what is it you're fearing in yourself? Well, the terrible power that's within yourself. The God part, you know? He goes on, he says, The other thing it showed me is that certain aspects of the psychedelic experience are way too alien to be mine. They aren't mine. 
Are they fantasies? Yes, but they aren't my fantasies. They are the intermentation of the field of subjectivity around me. They are the noumena. So that's just a way of saying they're the fantasies of God, right? You're the, dis, you're the dissociated piece of God, right? But the fantasies of God, that's what you're seeing in the psychedelic experience, something like that. The mentation, the mind of God. He says, they are part of what nature is in essence, as opposed to how nature presents itself to me through my sense organs. They are part of the thing in itself, and the thing in itself going on out there is weird. It's the difference between to see nature and to be nature. Psychedelics give you a hint of what it is to be nature beyond yourself. And it's mighty weird. And at the same time, extraordinarily familiar. And that's a very characteristic cognitive dissonance in a deep psychedelic trance. That the thing that is most alien, most anxiety-inducing, most discombobulating, at the same time is the thing closest to you, the most familiar, the most primordial, that which you knew at the very beginning of time and have forgotten, that which is the real you, and at the same time so incredibly alien, it surpasses any conceivable notion of a personal self. It surpasses all of our categories. All of them. Man. I just love that he repeated that. All of them. Because yes. Yes. Exactly. Um, a couple things here. He, he mentions this cognitive dissonance. Um, experiencing something that's so different from you and so far above you, and so much more powerful than you. And at the same time, it's the most familiar and the, and the closest thing to you. You can tell that the thing you're experiencing is yourself and God. You know, It is yourself and the thing most different from yourself that you can imagine. And this cognitive dissonance is something that I've talked about many, many times, talking about mystic experience. It's like, a, it's like something like what we were describing when we talked about the Ouroboros when we said that that mind all by itself, God, in the beginning, for lack of a better word, is something like opposites together, opposites in union, the Ouroboros. And having an experience of something that is you and the most different thing from you you can possibly imagine, having that experience at, at the same time is something like that, exactly like that. It's an experience of the Ouroboros. It's the same exact kind of thing that ancient people talk about in their creation stories all over the world. It's amazing. And you experience that same paradox when you in encounter this mystic you know, frame of mind. And then having this idea of your categories being um, demolished or surpassed, you know, that kind of goes hand in hand um, because categories, you know, Becoming one with the universe, that's what the mystic experience is like. That's what people say, you know? That's what they mean by that. All of our categories go away. You know, all of those dissociations, they all go away. And that's how you become one. And it's strange because he talks about it, he talks about it being something like, like you're remembering something you've always known. He says, that which you knew at the very beginning of time and have forgotten. 
And that is exactly what mystic experience feels like. It it doesn't feel like a novel experience as much as you think it would. It feels like you're remembering having experienced it before. Like, you ever have a memory that pops out of nowhere? Uh, like my wife one time, she brought up a, a cartoon from our childhood called David the Gnome. And I had zero idea what she was talking about. It's like, nope, I didn't. I never watched it. I don't know what you're talking about. And then we look up on YouTube the the music, you know, the the introduction to David the Gnome, and I hear the music. And as soon as I hear the music, I get a flood of memories come back to me, like, oh yes, that dissociative wall fell down, and I and I all those memories came back to me. I'm like, I fucking do know David the Gnome. That's how it feels when you're in the mystic experience and you encounter God and you become God. It's not like, you know, I was going to say it's not like, whoa, wow, in an, in an all situation, but it absolutely is. But it's all of those things in, all wrapped up in the idea that you've been there before. It's, a, it's like a remembering, and that is one of the weirdest things. All right, and then he says, the third takeaway message, and the most important, is that mind concocts its own sense of reality. What this tells you is that our sense of reality does not come from outside the mind. Our sense of reality is endogenous. Therefore, the real insight from the psychedelic trance is that this, right now, is a creation of mind. That your sense of reality right now is all mental stuff. That's amazing. I don't disagree, Bernardo. I'm with you, buddy. Then he says, there was one experience I had with psilocybin, and he talked about it being about a five to six dried gram dose, in which the only reference I had that would get me anywhere near what I had experienced was the Buddhist void, in which there is only mind. There is only potentiality. It's not constrained by space or time at all. It's a moment of eternity. All right, that brings me to the next section, which I'm just going to call death. It's real short and sweet. So, so Nick is asking uh, uh, Bernardo about about death and uh, in, in in the frame of his idealism, and he says, he says, if the body is the image of dissolution, the end of the body implies the end of dissolution or dissociation. Excuse me. Remember, so he believes that everything is mind. And that how we become an individual ego is through this dissociation that happens. Mind breaks up and, you know, some piece of it believes it's its own mind. And when that happens, um, you have the physical world, right? He said, you look out at the rest of yourself across that dissociative boundary. And what used to be yourself, what used to be part of yourself, what used to be God, now is like the material cosmos, separate from you, across this dissociative boundary. So when he says the body is the image of dissociation, that's what he means. And then he says the end of the body implies the end of dissociation. So what is death to Bernardo? You know, we dissociated from the source. We were once God. And when we die, we become God again. Something like that. And he says, when the default mode network in the brain begins to unravel, and he talks about this um, in mystic experience, like an ego death, but he also talks about it in act, like an actual death. He says, you think, my God, that's me, and I'm going to go. No, no. 
you are the thing that's observing the dissolution. <laughs> I just got chills and the hair stands up on my arms. So when you're dying, now I've, I've experienced this before in, with an ego death, but just imagine you're, you're dying. You're laying in a, down in a hospital bed. You know it's the end is coming. You know you're dying. And, you know, maybe you, maybe you have some kind of DMT-style psychedelic trip when you're dying. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But in either case, you are the thing observing yourself dying. You are the thing observing yourself dying. You're not your body, exactly. You're the thing observing your own death. So, so you carry on. Consciousness endures, you know. Death is not the end. And that brings me to the next section, which is called Heaven and Hell. Bernardo says, I've had trips that I could describe as equally cathartic and hellish. The difference between pleasure and pain disappears in those experiences. I had this experience once. I went really deep in. And after you pass ego dissolution, after you pass the fantastic visual hallucinations and the aliens and the parallel universe and all that, and then you pass the void and you keep going. There is something at the base of the fountain. There is something at the very root of minds, at the very root of existence. It is the ultimate. You understand that whatever I say now is nonsense because it cannot be captured in words, so I won't talk about it. I'll talk around it. At that fountain, it was like a multi-hyperdimensional fractal pattern was unfolding. It came from a singularity of nothing and begun to unfold. And it unfolds based only on itself. The richness of this unfolding is beyond anything that can be conceived in an ordinary state of consciousness. And at the same time, it's nothing. That unfolding comes from nothing. Inside there is nothing, and out of the nothing comes all of that. And at some point I was like, this is going to fry my mind. A human mind cannot be aware of it and survive. The diversity of states is so massive that you cannot maintain any sense of structural or dynamic integrity. To become acquainted with it is to die, is to lose your internal integrity to lose everything that defines you as a mind. That is real death, not ego death. Beautiful. Just a, just a beautiful explanation of, of what that deep mystic experience is like. I couldn't say it better. And he says, My fear is that heaven and hell are both death. That is it. That's the foundation. It's both hell and heaven. Excuse me, that's the fountainhead, he says. It's both heaven and hell. And I can understand how it can be both because it's simultaneously terrifying and beyond delightful. It's cathartic. It's beyond beauty. And it kills you if you stare at it. The reason the fires of hell burn you is because they are unspeakably beautiful. It's a beauty that dissolves you. Jesus. That's great and poetic. So, 
we go back a bit where he's talking about having these trips that he describes as equally cathartic and hellish. And he says that the difference between pleasure and pain disappears, right? So pleasure and pain are the same thing. They're also opposites. You get that Ouroboros happening again. You get pleasure and pain together, the union of opposites. And you have these uh, feelings, emotions, um, intensities, but you wouldn't call them pleasure or pain. He's like, the difference disappears, and I think that's that's tied directly with the idea that he's when he says, my fear is that hell and heaven are both death. Right? Because when you encounter the, the source from, from which you came, when you encounter the fountainhead, he said, the difference between pleasure and pain goes away. Now, you, if it was pleasure, you might call that encounter heaven. If it was hell, you might... You might call it if it was painful or or, or uh, negative. You might you might call that hell, right? But that distinction goes away. So the fountainhead is both hell and heaven. I can understand how it could be both, right? You've got the Ouroboros again, heaven and hell together. The reason, the reason the fires of hell burn you, because they are unspeakably beautiful. And that brings me to my conclusion. I would say Bernardo Castro is certainly one of the thinkers that most closely parallels my own thinking, at least that I've encountered so far. His interests, like mine, unapologetically combine physics, psychedelic experience, philosophy of mind, with religious ideas from across the world. He too sees experience as the raw irreducible element of reality. He too recognizes in that a, a connection to the idea we call God. Bernardo, like myself, experienced the unity of reality and mystical experience and took it literally. He sees himself and you and I as pieces of God dissociated from our own infinity. We are mind, and the world outside is mind, and God is mind, one in the same. The implications of this ontology are immense. Bernardo reminds us that if we are mind existing within mind, then we have agency over more than just ourselves. We can form ourselves and our reality, and in fact, we do. Just as we conjure the world of dreams, we conjure the waking world too. So we are God, as I've said ad nauseum. We are the creators of the physical world. A power, which as Bernardo said, comes from observation. We are that which experiences the world into being. And when we die, what then? What happens when God dies? Just as we do in life, we are the creators of what comes next. Bernardo reminds us that if life is dissociation from the mystic unity, then death is its undoing. Death is re-association with the divine mind. Appropriately, we have a religious parallel to this idea. It comes from the oldest religious tradition on earth, Hinduism. In Hinduism, we are dissociated shards 
of the soul of God. We are Atman, and it is Brahman. When we die, say the Hindus, our Atman returns to its source and once again becomes Brahman. We are reunited with ourself and become the God we always were. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. 